Okay, welcome back to Authentic Learning, where we discuss authentic learning in all things education with progressive educators, students, parents from the Green School community and from around the world. My guest today is Andrew Hallam. Andrew is originally from Canada and taught English and personal finance internationally for 11 years, which set him up nicely to become a best-selling author of the Financial Guides, Millionaire Teacher, and Millionaire Expat, while consistently contributing to international publications. We are lucky to have him here at Green School this week to share his no-nonsense ideas about saving and investing and preparing for retirement with our students, teachers, and parent community. His ideas have an authenticity to them that are hard to ignore, and I think you'll enjoy his thoughts on how schools can make learning authentic for our students. Andrew, welcome. It's a pleasure to have you um, at the school and on the show. Andrew, I'd like to start by asking my guests to share what authentic means to them. So what comes to your mind when I say authentic learning? I think something that students need to learn. So applicable schools that or skills that are relevant to their lives in the future. That makes sense. And so uh, can you speak a bit, bit about your time as a teacher and what you saw that was that was working in schools and what you saw that wasn't working? Well, I saw that schools were typically pretty good at preparing kids for college. So mm -hmm. most of the schools that I've taught at were pretty good at that. So the, the test taking, obviously they've been trying to bring in elements of innovation, but for the most part, getting kids ready to go to post-secondary education, which is a good thing because this is, this, is, this is again, a real world thing. But then when we come out of college, there are certain real world skills that many of us need, but we don't acquire either through school sort of high middle school, high school, and then again through college. So you know, back to the, when you talk about authentic learning, I think the two most important core concepts for education to me are, well, one is health. And so health to me beats all other subject, core subject sort of contents in terms of importance. Because every decision that we make is based on health, whether it's nutritional health, whether it's social health, getting along with other people, interpersonal relationships, environmental health, um, the physical health, conflict resolution, everything that we do relates to this concept, but it's treated more as a, a side course often, as an elective, as something that's kind of part of the PE curriculum and it's not treated as seriously as, say, an English class. And then I think the second most important course would be something like a personal finance course because again, these are skills that the, the student or the young adult, when they get out into the real world, are going to be using every single day of their life. And as much as I love Shakespeare and as a high school English teacher, I do know for a fact that learning about Shakespeare, as cool as that is, uh, has very little real world application. Interesting. And going back to being financially literate out in the world and understanding how things work, I know we talked a little bit in an, in an earlier conversation about motivations behind some of the big decisions of big corporations and governments as well. Uh, I wonder if you could expand a little bit more on that. <laughs> yeah, there was a, you know, the story I was telling you earlier was, was a really interesting one. So I've been a magazine writer for years. And, and and kids need to understand a couple of things. One is how the marketing world really works. And, and this is something I think should be part of a, 
almost a standalone personal finance class where it's integrated though into other core subject areas. And so let's take English, for example, and the whole marketing component. So how do you influence people when you're writing? How do you influence people when you're speaking? How do you, how do you motivate people to do what you want, buy something that you want? Um, an interesting point is when you're sort of looking at that whole advertising concept is looking at something like the financial magazine industry, which I've been a part of for years. And there was, I think it was 2004, I wrote a story for a finance magazine. And it was about a inspiration that I had early on when I was 19, I met a, a mechanic who was a millionaire. And he, and he taught me some core fundamental principles that, that I've, I've tried to adhere to ever since. And, and one of them was that if you're trying to build wealth, don't buy a brand new car. You know, so don't lease a car. Make sure you buy something that you can afford. And, and I mentioned this in the magazine article. And it, it wasn't the main component of the article. I probably wrote three or four lines about it. And the magazine ended up doing really well. It ended up getting nominated for a, a national, um, became a finalist for a national magazine award. And General Motors ended up calling the magazine perhaps about a week after it hit the newsstands and said, if you publish something like that again, uh, we're going to pull our advertisements. And so when you think about how a magazine makes its money, and this is something that's really important to teach our kids, is that how the world works isn't necessarily how we might think on a surface level. We have to dig into what's what are behind some of these motivations. And so a finance magazine, if you open up Forbes or Smart Money magazine and you look to see who the advertisers are, well, I'll ask you, who are the advertisers? Right, the, the big corporations. Sure, right? the financial service companies, you're yeah. gonna get like, for a finance magazine, you might get some Rolex ads, some insurance ads, big insurance companies. Ads. Yeah, but mostly it'll be financial companies. So they're targeting towards people that are reading about money. So it'll be insurance companies, um, and then some high status stuff too, because of course people that want money want all kinds of fancy things. And it was really interesting when General Motors had called the, the editor and said, publish something like that again in your magazine and, uh, and we pull our advertisements. So my suggestion is to never take financial advice, number one, from a, from a financial magazine. <laughs> right, and then the financial magazine realizes that, ooh, General Motors is, is a big cash cow, we, we need them, so we're gonna listen, we're gonna publish what they want. Yeah, absolutely. They have to tread a fine line here. They have to try, obviously they want to give some kind of objective, objective news stories, but uh, they have a different master. Indeed. So one thing I admire about your work is that you stress that you are not a financial advisor, but rather you're looking to empower others to navigate their own way through an often confusing world of financial advising, kind of the teach a man to fish uh, theory there, right? So can you speak more about this and, and how it ties into authentic learning for our students? Well, teaching a person to fish, I, I like your analogy. I, I think this is really important because again, when we go out into the real world, uh, every decision that our students will make relates to something, of course, financial. And so there, there are financial tie-ins tie -ins to everything. Every purchase decision that we make every purchase decision. It's a financial decision, but it affects so many different factors. How much happiness is derived, for example, from buying the new iPhone 32? You buy it, and after a short while, it just becomes a phone. So we have to understand, I think, our key, one of the key drivers for people is, is a happiness driver. But when we're spending money on 
all these high-end materialistic things, are we really augmenting our levels of happiness? Versus, okay, now what's the downside to all that? What's the downside to me continuing to buy new phones? Well, you know, these things end up in landfills. Like, that's not exactly cool. What's the downside to me perpetually buying a new car? Well, it's much the same thing. You know, all right, drive what you have, maintain it, and continue to use it. So this is, this is more sustainable. So these are the sort of things that I think really need to be taught in schools as a part of a, a really broad, holistic personal finance curriculum. Yeah, wonderful. So, and it seems that this whole world of financial investing is quite intimidating for many people. Uh, it causes them to either stay clear of it entirely or to entrust a financial advisor to handle all their money. And why do you think this is? Why is it so intimidating to so many of us? I think the industry tries to make it seem intimidating and make it seem challenging. That's number one. And the industry has a leg up on us because here, here's a funny thing. You could have in the United States, you can get something called a Series 7 certification. And it takes three weeks to study for it. You can do it and you can finish it in as little as three weeks. You take your exam at the end of that three weeks, which is a multiple choice exam. And after that, you're licensed to sell mutual funds. So you could literally sort of historically come right out of college and take your series seven. And I'm not sure what the requirements are before taking the series seven now, but I know that you don't need any kind of financial, uh, further other financial education to put you in that, that seat, that test seat, um, so to speak. And so, Normally, I mean, this is what's really weird about it. We don't learn this stuff in school, so then somebody with a three-week education can walk circles or run circles around us when we're talking about finances. And so the industry does try to make it complicated, and we can't see through it because we don't learn this stuff in school, and someone taking a three-week course can talk or walk circles around us when it comes to financial terminology, and that's pretty scary. That puts the ball in favor of the financial service industry to get us to do things they want us to do, sell us products they want us to buy so that they can benefit off, they can benefit from those products. Yeah, wonderful. And and at the risk of, of spoiling the plot of your books or oversimplifying more more worrisome, is is you advise to to take advantage of the historical consistency consistency of the stock markets invest in stock indexes, which is essentially a small piece of every stock in the market. But is there a way to use this strategy, but focusing all your investments on companies that, that are acting in sustainability conscious ways? Yeah, in investing, just to, to back this up and talk about the consistency of the stock market, the only thing that's really consistent about it is its inconsistency. So it goes up, it goes down. There are periods of time where you'll have really strong rates of return on average over a decade, and then you'll have another decade where it's lousy. But your original premise is correct that if we look at rolling 30-year periods, we do have compound average annual returns in the range of sort of 8 to 10% per year. So now onto the sustainability aspect. Um, the odds of success with investing are highest when we do as little trading as possible. So many of us think that that's a really smart person that's sitting there next to a trading desk and they're flipping in and out of stocks and they're the people that are going to get the edge. No, no. So we have all kinds of academic peer-reviewed studies suggesting that the more we trade, the less we earn. And Fidelity did an interesting study to see which of its investors were actually the best investors. So they looked at different demographics, they looked at uh, different levels of education, and what they found that their best investors were either dead or they'd forgotten they had an account with Fidelity. 
So and they were just riding. Exactly. So I'm going to come to the sustainable investing part of it in, in a second, but I want to say that if you own the entire market, so you essentially own a sliver of every single stock within a given market with no trading at all, and you can do this, uh, you can own this through a broad-based index fund. After fees, you will beat, and this is an academically irrefutable premise. If you don't mess around and you just buy the total stock market index, you will beat 90% of professional traders after fees over any 10-year period or longer. So this is virtually, uh, it's an academically irrefutable premise. So now, back to the sustainability question. You have 7,000 stocks, let's say, on the New York Stock Exchange. Now, let's say you have a choice. You decide you're going to choose the companies that, let's say, don't deal with weapons manufacturing. Let's say you're, you're going to deal with companies that uh, don't deal with tobacco products or alcohol products or pornography or gambling or companies that are doing their best or their part to reduce their economic footprint. It's not the economic footprint I'm looking for. It's a carbon footprint. Carbon footprint. Yeah, to yeah. produce, to reduce, they want, to, they want to increase their economic footprint, reduce their carbon footprint. So you can look at companies that do this. Let's say we break this down to, say, a thousand different companies out of the 7,000 that are on the stock market. And let's assume now you just buy those. Well, that's tough to do, to buy a bunch of individual businesses. And so you can buy a socially responsible index fund, much like a broad market index fund, but this time it's screened for social sustainability or responsibility. It's not gonna be perfect because of course you are going to find, although they have small percentages of oil and gas companies within those indexes, they are there, but they'll be the indexes that are also, or the companies, I'm sorry, that are also involved in wind or in solar. So they're looking for and branching out into some kind of alternative energy. So there are other aspects too that don't make it absolutely perfect. You could have McDonald's or Coca-Cola in there. And of course, both of those companies arguably make people fat. So ethically, is this right? Now, so there's a question too, but it's, it's probably the best thing that we can do. Alternatively, what some people might try to do is say, they'll buy a, a, an index fund that comprises just solar companies or companies that are into solar energy or just into wind energy, which is great. But the tricky part there, of course, is on aggregate, these companies haven't really made profits. And so when you're investing in them so far, um, they haven't been profitable. But at some point, uh, I think eventually they will be. Wonderful. And, and that leads kind of nicely into this question. We, we do a lot of study here uh, about the climate change and the issues around climate change. And we're sending students and teachers to the, the, cardio, uh, excuse me, the climate <clears throat> talks in Poland next month, this month. Cool. And, and, and I'm wondering, you know, there's lots of people out there who are saying that, that society in general, but certainly our, our economic model, which relies so heavily on, on resources and mining more resources and growth, growth, growth is, is bound to collapse. And, and I'm wondering what's your thoughts on that? I know that over the past hundred years more, there's been a real consistency in the inconsistency, as you say, but but on the broad thing, it's 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 always going up. But do you worry that that we are getting to a point where this global economic model that we've relied on for so long is going to collapse? Well, if we look at, at global warming and we look at the rate that the oceans are warming at this at this point, it's not sustainable. So at some point, something has to give. 
So what I think is important to do is, I guess remember that serenity prayer? Sure. Remember the serenity prayer? Sure. Right? So what Except is that? Accept so the things. You control the things I can control. The strength to control the things I can control. Yeah. The, what is it? The, some, the acceptance to not... To accept the things I can't control. The and wisdom then have to the know wisdom. the difference. Correct. The right. wisdom to know the difference. Right. So on a personal level, here's what I think is really important. You do what you can to reduce your carbon footprint. Right? So that's important. Number one, so you, you be the best person that you can be. You treat people and you treat the environment uh, as well as you can. So you do your part. You don't become an excessive consumer. You know, that's one thing. Uh, look after certain aspects of your life, like ensure that you have a shelter and ensure that that shelter is paid for. So you pay it off. So you don't get into excessive amounts of debt. So if the financial system ends up completely collapsing and you've invested for your future okay so so what then it's if you look at the alternative and say well uh it's like ocam's razor you know where you look at all right what's the benefit of not investing for my future and buying a house investing in the markets if there's a potential collapse coming where the whole economic system becomes like some sort of future armageddon you don't benefit by not going forward and investing. It's a lose-lose situation by not looking after your future, by not buying a house, by not investing. That's a lose-lose scenario. But looking after your future, buying that house, saving for your future, if we don't have financial Armageddon, cool, you win, right? So I mean, ultimately the smartest thing to do is I think, uh, accept the things that you can't control, right? change the things that you can control, and then have the wisdom to know the difference. So back to the original question, Am I afraid? Um, the answer is no. I don't think that's rational to be afraid. Just do what you can do. Brilliant, brilliant. So what are your thoughts on that changing models of global economic systems of cryptocurrencies and their potential to decentralize and diversify currency control? And where do you think they're going? A lot of people ask me about cryptocurrency and not so much because they see this as a... A, a new, I guess they do, but they, what they look at often is they look at cryptocurrency from an investment perspective. That's what many people ask me about. Will there be a cryptocurrency in the future that, um, that will be somewhat stable? I, I think so at some stage, there will be. Will it take over from the US dollar, the British pound, the Canadian dollar, the Aussie dollar? I don't think so. I think it would probably end up just being an additional currency, but it has to become stable. So if let's say I paid you a uh, dollar worth of Bitcoin 12 months ago and you decided that you were going to try and cash that in and buy yourself a chocolate bar, well, you couldn't because that dollar worth of Bitcoin 12 months ago is now worth 30 cents. That's completely unstable. It, interesting from an investment perspective because so many people are buying it in the hopes that they're going to make money from buying some kind of cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. And there are loads of them that are sort of popping up all over the place. But there's no cash flow associated with Bitcoin. And so when there's no cash flow, it's kind of like, uh, let me give you a stock market example. Take a, a pharmaceutical company that finds a cure for cancer. If this would change the world, right? That stock would increase exponentially. However, if company earnings or net income growth did not match those expectations, that stock price would drop. So the company could sell all of these sort of uh, cancer curing drugs at once, but if it's mismanaged, 
then the share price will only rise for a while and eventually it will crash because a share price must rise or fall long term in proportion to the earnings of the company. Now, so let's go back to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin has no cash flow. It's not a property that you can rent out. It's not a business you can own whereby that business earns sales and then revenues. So both of those things can rise in value because they have potential for cash flow. But something like a cryptocurrency, it's just a fancy money order. That's all it is. Interesting, interesting. So there are so many more nuggets in Andrew's books and we could go on and on for a long time here. But Andrew, I want to I wanna thank you so much for stopping by to share with us and uh, wish you all the best. And uh, again, enjoy your journey and thanks for sharing your knowledge. Thank you, Glenn. This is a great school. It's fun to be here. All right.